Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Red Light Report. I am extremely, extremely excited for this series that we're releasing. Uh, This is going to be the first of likely a three-part series on the influence of ocular light perception, meaning how light affects the eyes. So buckle up, get ready, because this is an extremely, extremely exciting and informative episode. I've been really looking forward to releasing these episodes. Not that I've recorded them, but I've been looking forward to recording them because When I first read this book, it wasn't really until recently, thanks to Dr. Leland Stillman, if you guys remember that name from a podcast episode interview that I did earlier this summer with Dr. Leland Stillman, and he is just a wealth of knowledge, and he specifically referred to the book that I'll be speaking about for this podcast series. It's by a gentleman born in 1909. That's correct, 1909. Fritz Hallwich, who was in the Department of Ophthalmology in the University of Munster, West Germany. The information I'm going to present today and for the next couple of episodes, you have likely never, ever heard of, but its impact is profound. So that's why I say get ready and buckle up and In that case, buckle up twice because we're going to have some really cool information this episode. The reason why I'm so excited is because, like I mentioned, I had never heard of any of this information. And most of the information and research cited in this book is from really the early to mid-1900s. So it's been around for a long, long time, just hanging out in the archives until, like I said, Dr. Leland Stillman referred me to this book. It's called... The Influence of Ocular Light Perception on Metabolism in Man and Animal. So kind of a sciencey name, but that's because it's mostly about research, but specifically how light affects the eye. And when I say that, I'm not necessarily talking about vision. So that's where you're going to learn some really cool concepts today and the next couple of episodes. With that being said, just to kind of preface how these episodes will go, I don't have all of this information off the top of my head. I don't have an eidetic memory like Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory for those who watch that. So I'm going to have to basically read some of this book and be reciting research that I highlighted, underlined, which I do with every single book I read, that I found informational and I think would be good for you, the audience who's interested in red light therapy, to know. Because again, I'm all about red light therapy. I'm all about this new technology, but nothing beats the sun and full spectrum natural sunlight. And you will see the profound effects that sunlight has on our biology. And really, it's where we came from, meaning at a molecular level, it's the sun. So we can't replicate it with technology. We can't replicate it with light bulbs. And you will soon see the many, many, many detriments to our physiology, secondary to either A, being surrounded by fake light, which is modern day lifestyle, and or not getting enough sunlight in general. So 
we do a pretty good job in this day and age of doing the double whammy, meaning we're inside way more than our biology is used to, and we're outside a fraction of the time that our biology needs to be. So that's why I'm really excited to present the information from this book by Fritz Hallwich. I'll be citing off dates as much as I can, but just remember, most of this research is from the early to mid-1900s. So without further ado, let's get this bad boy started. So we're going to start with the preface of the book, and the copyright in this book is 1979. Again, Fritz Hallwich was born in 1909. So let's get started with the preface. This book was written to show that light is a primal element of life. All life originates and develops under the influence of the light of the sun. Sunlight influences the vital processes not only of the plant and the animal, but of man as well. The human organism too reacts heliotropically, meaning the sun, as the 24-hour rhythm and the sleep-waking cycle demonstrates. In an age, however, when fluorescent lighting turns night into day, we are in danger of forgetting that man is a creature of nature as well of culture. Artificial light cannot replace natural daylight. As an author was recently able to prove, exposure to bright white artificial illumination of 3,500 lux for a mere 14 days produces a stressful reaction, whereas daylight of the same intensity has a beneficial vitalizing effect. In experiments performed over a period of almost three decades, from 1948 to 1975, the author and co-authors were the first to demonstrate conclusively that the eye is the channel for light's stimulatory effect. In order to elucidate this effect and separate it clearly from the visual process, in 1948, the author designated the neural pathway conducting the photostimulus to the pituitary gland as the quote-unquote energetic portion of the optic pathway. And just to step aside here, you'll hear that time and time again, the visual portion that we're all used to, we can see with our eyes, correct? But Fritz Hallwich and his research is going to demonstrate that there is an energetic pathway, an energetic portion of the optic pathway. So that's why I say you've likely never heard of this before. So vision itself proceeds independently via the optic portion of the optic pathway. It is the purpose of this book to demonstrate to architects as well as teachers, physicians, and lighting experts that the source of the light rays entering the eye is of great importance. Artificial light may be an optic substitute but is by no means equivalent to natural light in physiological terms. Too much artificial fluorescent light interferes with the natural development of the child and subjects the nervous system of the adult to inordinate stress. The health of our organism is dependent to a large degree upon the environmental factor of light, i.e. upon the entry of natural light into the eye. In retrospect, we can say that the introduction of electricity as the energy source for artificial light led to the rise of modern-day civilization. The time had passed when our forebears went to bed at sunset. Valuable working hours were gained and were utilized for further process. And so when he's saying introduction of electricity, we need to think of Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, and Nikola Tesla, who helped electrify the power grid. And that was in the late 1800s. And you've heard me say this before, 
I get that in reference to Dr. Jack Cruz. It was really from the late 1800s onwards that we saw the many, many diseases that we see today. Food may be a problem, but it's the light in our lighting environment that has led to the multitude, the laundry list of diseases and cancers that we see today. And that all comes back to the impact on our mitochondria, just as a reminder. But moving on, many of today's large buildings are without windows and are completely air-conditioned. Man, who, like all living creatures, evolved under the light of the sun, is thereby cut off not only from the visible light, but also from the interaction between invisible electromagnetic rays and the Earth's electric field. So of course, anytime we're indoors, especially when we have shoes on, and our shoes outside, we're not grounding with the Earth. That again, our biology was raised upon, if you will, and evolution was built upon. So every time we're wearing shoes, every time we're indoors, we are further removing ourselves from the Earth's electromagnetic field, which is nourishing to our body as anti-inflammatory, because again, that's a source of free electrons. And more electrons means less inflammation, and we all know what less inflammation means. So moving on. In addition, leading lighting engineers have come forward with the assertion that artificial light is equivalent to daylight. To be sure, so-called daylight lamps with their fluorescent tubes emit a bright light which is perfectly adequate for vision. From morning until evening, daylight yields an uneven gradient taking form of a curve which is relieved by natural shadows, whereas the artificial light of fluorescent tubes emits an even, monotonous, shadowless brightness of linear constancy. The spectrum of artificial light is considerably abbreviated, although there are isolated examples of fluorescent tubes with a spectrum approaching that of daylight. Daylight illuminates places of work from the side. Artificial light, on the other hand, illuminates predominantly from the ceiling. The shadowless monotony of artificial light impedes physiologically important adaptive processes of the eye, e.g. pupil response and visual purple regeneration. Bright artificial light entering the eye does not intensify the matutinal excretion, and matutinal means evening, so the eye does not intensify the matutinal excretion of cortisol and has an intensely stimulatory effect on the organism. In the course of the day, however, premature fatigue sets in. In addition to this, shadowless brightness impedes the process of accurate spatial vision Metal workers in particular complain about this in their artificially illuminated factories. The more profound effect of protracted intensive artificial light on human metabolism and hormone balance has already been discussed. Man has already reached a remarkably high level of civilization in the last decades due to the introduction of many technological options. He should now devote a portion of his energies to the study of those life factors which are indispensable for the maintenance of his health and thus his existence. That was a lot to take in, and that's the end of the preface there. But in essence, Fritz Hallwich is saying that there are many, many health maladies, health conditions, and physiological consequences to being surrounded by fake light, namely the artificial spectrum of light from fluorescent lights. Let's remember, incandescent lights came first, but their 
energy intensive, meaning they're not energy efficient. So companies have gotten on board with this energy efficiency, have marketed it well, and thus, especially if you are uh, trying to light up a building, you're going to use the cheaper, more efficient fluorescent lights, which, again, like Fritz Hollowich was alluding to, gives off a unnatural, monotonous, shadowless brightness of linear constancy in our eyes. Our physiology is used to that curve effect of the spectrum from the natural sunlight. So who knows how it all started, but chances are that people were looking to save a nickel and a dime, thus used fluorescent instead of incandescent. And by the way, incandescent illuminates and irradiates with much more red and infrared than fluorescent lights. But that's also what makes it energy inefficient. Because if it's emitting red and near infrared, then it's emitting a lot more heat than these fluorescent lights that are much more white and blue and don't emit as much heat. So there's this transition that he was speaking about in the end where man has already made a remarkably high level of civilization in the last decades. And remember, this is the 1950s, 60s, 70s when he's writing this that he's speaking about, that we've made all these technological advances, yet at what price, especially to our physiology via the eye? He's an ophthalmologist, of course, so he's thinking in terms of the eye, but man, what would he say now in 2022 when now we have the metaverse where you can put on augmented reality or virtual reality goggles and you're in a different location or a different world altogether. And I'm saying that only to say that what type of light are these goggles emitting? Surely it has to be blue light. I'd have to, I'd have to look it up. I'm, I'm just kind of spitting off the top of my head here, but we're moving more and more towards a world of blue lit technology, blue lit lighting environment in our houses, and further and further and further away from how our biology was built. Just food for thought, but that's kind of the premise of this book. And as we go on here, it's going to be much more profound, that preface, because you're going to understand truly the impacts of light via our eye. And again, it's not for vision. It's for that energetic pathway. And just to give you guys a brief insight into the topics that we'll be going over here, I'll read to you the contents. So we'll have the energetic portion of the optic nerve, light and the pineal gland or pineal gland, light and growth, and that's where we'll stop uh, at the end of this episode is at light and growth, and then further topics will be light and body temperature, light and kidney function, light and blood count, light and metabolic functions such as lipid metabolism, protein metabolism, liver metabolism, carbohydrate balance, blood sugar, insulin, and then we have light and thyroid function, light and sexual function, light and adrenal and pituitary functions, natural sunlight and artificial fluorescent light, such as intensity, spectral differences, and the monotony of artificial lighting that Fritz Hollowich alluded to in the preface, light pollution, and then the importance of light in metabolism in man and animal, the summary. So those are the topics to look forward to in this three-part series, likely three-part. So again, we'll, we'll go through today the energetic portion of the optic nerve, light in the pineal gland, that's how I'm going to say it, pineal, light and growth, 
And that's where we'll end for today. So without further ado, there is some interesting tidbits in the introduction. So with the introduction here, we're going to learn some of the things that we'll cover in this episode and further episodes. In the transition from an aquatic form of life to life on land, our habits and vital functions have adapted themselves to the sun's light in an evolutionary process that has been occurring for millennia. The 24-hour day-night rhythm regulated the natural course of the day through the changing seasons. Under the influence of the polar winter, Marx, in 1946, or after polar expeditions, the participants frequently showed abnormalities in water balance accompanied by edema, general asthenia, which is lack of energy, accompanied by deterioration in behavior, hypotonia, meaning decreased muscle tone, hypoglycemia, decreased blood sugar levels, sinking of the basal metabolic rate, decrease in potency and libido, loss of hair, insomnia, feelings of oppression, depression, and irritability. These symptoms receded after sufficient exposure to sunlight. Marx designated the light deficiency of the polar winter as the pathogenic factor in his hypophyseal abnormality, and hypophysis meaning the pituitary gland. Moving on, Jendralski observed a patient in 1951 with cataracts on both lenses and diabetes insipidus with increased excretion of urine due to a pituitary disturbance. When the successful removal of the lenses permitted light to enter both eyes freely, all symptoms disappeared without further therapeutic measures. In 1935, the Innsbruck histologist von Schumacher in 1939 was struck by the fact that at the Tyrolean Hunt Show, the number of prizes awarded according to set standards for deer antlers varied from year to year. Schumacher investigated the relevant factors such as snowfall, temperature, and the amount of sunshine, coming to the conclusion that the number of hours of sunlight was the most important factor for new growth in antlers. Daylight per se is consequently a basic element which connects the vital functions occurring in the organism with the natural chronology of the cosmos, as Heufland expressed it, expressed it as Paracelsus put it. But with the daily alternation between day and night, we participate in the 24-hour circadian, known as circa diem, the circadian rhythm change from the active diurnal phase, which is daytime, to the restorative and regenerative nocturnal one. So as human beings, as mammals, we participate in what we've all heard of as the circadian rhythm but there are many physiological processes that we'll learn about in today's episode and others that are predicated on light in our light environment. We're used to this 24-hour cycle where we have light at a certain time and darkness at a certain time. But of course, again, in today's modern world, we have confounded our physiology and thus our health because we live in a lit environment, uh, an environment with light, much longer than our physiology is used to. We get much less sleep. And again, we're indoors much more and outside much less. So again, we're just setting ourselves up for health conditions and cancers and diseases 
just by messing up our lighting environment. Uh, moving on. The question that we will try to answer is how light attains its effect on the human and animal organism. The pages which follow attempt to show that the stimulatory and regulatory effect of light on the human and animal organism takes place via the eye. Independently of the visual process itself, i.e. the optic portion of the visual pathway, light's entry into the eye induces the diencephalic pituitary system by means of the energetic portion of the visual pathway. And this is cited by Hallwich in 1948. So think about that. 74 years ago now, he identified an energetic portion in the visual pathway. In this manner, metabolism and the endocrine system are exposed to the direct influence of light. If these photo impulses are absent, as in the case with the blind, statistically significant deficiencies occur in both the endocrine and metabolic system. And so that's the end of the introduction. And that's a good place to end the introduction because, as you will see in the subsequent chapters, a lot of the research is done with either patients that have cataracts and then lenses that are removed so that their eye can get full-spectrum sunlight, and then thus you can see the changes in their hormones or other physiology. Or secondly, like was mentioned here, research done with the blind, because the blind can't perceive light. So if we compare the blind to those that aren't blind, we should see different changes in their physiology, different changes in their energy and hormone levels and so on and so forth. And that's what we're going to see in the chapters moving forward. So I hope this has kind of given you a taste of what's to come. I hope it's not too confusing. This may be an episode or this this series may be one you want to listen to a couple of times because it could be a little confusing to listen to. I'm hoping that I'm doing a good enough job of making it somewhat clear, but the impact again and how profound this information is really is why I'm doing this episode for for you, the audience. So, you know, I hope there's some take-home points for you, whether it's get outside more, be inside less, change your light bulbs in your house from fluorescent to incandescent or so on and so forth. But you'll, you'll quickly see just how impactful your lighting environment is. This podcast was brought to you by the Longev Revive Cream. If you haven't heard of this cream before, go back and listen to the podcast interview with David Horanek one of the people that helped create this amazing cream. The cream is specifically developed to enhance red light therapy treatment sessions. And not only that, but improve vibrational healing from the frequencies of full spectrum sunlight. The Revive includes special ingredients such as photodynamic amino acids, which helps convert UV light to red light. It increases production of this thing called fibronectin, which is said to be the holy grail of anti-aging. And then there's astaxanthin, which has been shown in clinical studies to increase skin moisture, moisture retention, and elasticity. There's turmeric, which contains an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial properties. There's copper peptides, which also has antioxidant, anti-inflammatory effects. C60 has high antioxidant power to prevent skin aging, 172 times more than vitamin C. And then there's also geranium rose, shungite, humic acids, and most of these ingredients are organic and they're all high, high quality. So if you want to check this cream out, go to longev.com, that's L-O-N-G-E-V-V.com, or you can also find it on biolite.shop, that's biolite.shop.
So moving on to the energetic portion of the optic nerve. Again, not the visual, the energetic portion. In the popular mind, the eye is considered exclusively an organ of vision, and its function consists solely in the perception of visual impressions. However, along with this optic function, the eye performs another intermediary role, which has scarcely been recognized up to now. By to now, of course, that means 19. you know, 60, 70, up to now, but which is no less important for the autonomic or unconscious vital functions. Light stimuli entering the eye induce biological functions in the animal and human organism. For this purpose, they use separate pathways independent of the visual process. Thus, as a working hypothesis, it seemed practical to distinguish an energetic portion of the visual pathway in contract to the optic portion. This energetic portion represents the link between the retina and the hypothalamus. And this is a crucial point because the hypothalamus, and this is me speaking, the hypothalamus plays a crucial role in many important functions, including releasing hormones, regulating body temperature, maintaining daily physiological cycles, controlling appetite, managing of sexual behavior, and regulating emotional responses. To quote that last sentence by Hallwich, this energetic portion represents the link between the retina and hypothalamus. So between the eye and all of those physiological processes and characteristics I just mentioned. Again, this isn't from the retina to the visual portion of the brain. This is the retina to the hypothalamus, something we as quote-unquote normal people aren't used to hearing, is that energetic pathway. So in terms of evolution, there was originally a close connection between the eye and hypothalamus. In contrast to this, vision, in the strict sense, represents a more recent development in terms of evolution. The eye possesses two points of connection. The optic connection to the new brain or cerebrum, which does not yet function at birth because the medullary sheath is missing during the first weeks of life. And then the connection to the diencephalic pituitary system located in the area of the primitive brain, which functions from the very first day of life. So that was a bunch of fancy words to say that our vision isn't developed yet for the first couple of weeks of life, where this primitive connection between the retina and the hypothalamus functions from the very first day of life. So again, from our evolutionary perspective, this energetic pathway is a much more longstanding of origin and has been around for much longer than the vision we associate the eyes with today. So now hitting the ground with some research, and this this is pretty interesting, and this has to do with animals, frogs to be specific. Their skin color changes based on their environment. So if we change their environment from, let's say, a a bright environment, the frog shows a light skin color. In a dark environment, the same frog shows a dark skin color. With this research, to determine the effect of light and how it changes the skin color, the frog's visual center was made inoperative by means of electrocoagulation, 
vision fails were proven by a revolving drum experiment to, to prove that they were indeed blind. Uh, nevertheless, the frog's color adaptation to the environment was unimpaired. So even though they lost their vision, again, the visual pathway, their color adaptation was unimpaired. So we may conclude from this behavior that hormonal regulation of color change is induced by photostimuli reaching the pituitary gland via connecting nerves, which Hulwich, in a working hypothesis of 1948, described as the energetic portion in the visual pathway as opposed to the optic portion. So again, visual portion was cut off, they were blind, yet their skin color still changed because their eyes were still receiving information via the energetic pathway. So it's experiments like that that are incredible and really are pun intended, eye-opening. Stefan and Zucker in 1972 discovered further indications of a direct role of the nuclei and pathways already described in the regulation of vegetative functions. After the nuclei suprachiasmatici in rats had been made inoperative on both sides by electrolysis, the circadian rhythms regulating their activity and drinking patterns disappeared permanently in spite of their continuing ability to see. We can conclude from this that the neurons in these parts of the brain are responsible for eliciting these rhythms and for adapting the organism to changes of light in the environment. The eye fulfills a double function here. Owing to the optic portion of the visual pathway, it receives light for the purpose of visual perception, and owing it to the pathway's energetic portion, it transmits light for the purpose of stimulating the autonomic regulatory centers. So in this experiment, which they did in 1972, they did kind of the opposite. They cut off the rats from their energetic pathways. They still had vision, but energetic pathways, yet their circadian rhythms, regulating their activity and drinking patterns, disappeared permanently. So pretty interesting stuff. We know that photostimuli entering the eye influence the hypothalamus. There is further research which takes into account the role of the pineal gland here. Brownman, in 1937, demonstrated that rats exhibit permanent vaginal estrus when subject to light intensity consistently or constantly. Estrus is the period, for those who don't know, estrus is the period when high amount of estrogen is present in the blood. So back to the book, Brownman in 1937 demonstrated that rats exhibit permanent vaginal estrus, permanent estrogen production, when subject to a light of constant intensity. Fisk, in 1960, observed that the weight of the pineal gland in rats decreases when they are exposed to continuous illumination. So their pineal gland literally shrinks when they don't have a dark period of time where they don't have that diurnal pattern of lightness and darkness. The pineal gland shrinks. It was possible to prove, in addition, that the activity of the enzyme HIOMT, which forms melatonin, depends significantly upon the intensity of the light to which the animal is exposed. So already, we're seeing some really, really interesting stuff in the research, specifically about this energetic pathway, and how, while we can't necessarily quantify it tangibly, like we can't see it just like you can't see infrared light, 
it is a very impactful and profound pathway, this energetic pathway. <laughs> and as you'll see, it affects nearly every single system in our body, which makes sense because it's directly tied with the pineal gland, the hypothalamus, and those two organs alone have a lot of connections hormonally and physiologically. And for those who are not familiar with the pineal gland, uh, the main function of the pineal gland is to receive and convey information about the current light-dark cycle from the environment and consequently produce and secrete melatonin cyclically at night. So again, if our lighting environment is thrown off through this energetic pathway, our pineal gland, if we're in this constant state of brightness, we're not going to be releasing melatonin because the pineal gland is depending on some type of darkness to release the melatonin. We'll get to this in a subsequent chapter with melatonin specifically. In fact, that is the next chapter. But there's just so many ways that light and or darkness, lack of light, plays an impactful role. I feel like I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this too much, but I, I just want to really drive home what we're talking about here. So moving on to light and the pineal gland, as promised. So in 1918, the anatomist Holmgren found sensory cells in the pineal region of amphibians and fish that were similar to photoreceptive organelles. As a result of this discovery and of the easily observed retinal-like structure of the pineal glands of lampreys and lizards, the pineal gland was suspected of being a quote-unquote third eye. Upon removal of the pineal of lampreys, it turned out that these animals no longer grew pale when placed in the dark. And this was discovered in 1935. Later, Kelly's investigations with an electron microscope, and this is in 1962, showed a surprising similarity between the photoreceptive cells of the pineal organ of the frog and those of the frog's retina. At approximately the same time, the neurophysiologist Dot and Heard demonstrated that the pineal organ of the frog can convert light of various wavelengths into neural impulses. But it was not until 1958 that the biochemist and dermatologist A.B. Lerner was able to isolate the active element in the pineal gland of cattle responsible for the pallidness of the embryonal amphibian skin. The compound proved to be melatonin. So pretty interesting how melatonin came to be discovered, but it was through this investigation of the quote-unquote third eye, the pineal gland. Evolutionarily, we all had third eyes that were used as eyes, but through evolution, that third eye receded into our skull and as mammals, as humans, we no longer use it for what it was initially or originally used for. We use our eyes for vision, and thus this pineal gland has actually receded into our skull, into our brain. We'll, we'll touch on that here in a second. So going into the evolutionary history of the pineal gland, studies have shown that the organ was formed at the beginning of the evolution of living creatures with the function of transmitting heat and light as well as vibrations of the air to the body to stimulate reactions to danger, to reproduce, and so on. This organ, which later developed into the pineal gland, may be considered the original form taken by our sensory organs. Even in the case of invertebrates, such as crabs and insects, 
there is, in addition to the two facet eyes, a structure corresponding to the pineal organ of invertebrates. This apparently developed before the two laterally situated eyes. Among the oldest animals of the evolutionary scale, we find the jawless fish, which is the lamprey that I was talking about. Up until the time, its metamorphosis into the sexually mature animal, the hatched larva of the lamprey, has only the medial pineal eye. The rudiments of the lateral eyes do not develop until after metamorphosis. In the course of phylogenesis, the pineal organ becomes a tubular structure, one end of which forms the vesicular protuberant pineal eye, while the other connects with the cerebrospinal system. A histological makeup is found similar to that of sensory organs. In the case of later evolving amphibians, typical sensory cells can be detected by means of electron microscope. Reptiles, such as lizards, snakes, turtles, show the highest development of the pineal gland as a sensory organ. In their case, it has an incomplete ocular structure that contains a miniature cornea, lens, and conical retina with nerve fibers emanating from it. In birds, the pineal organ, which had formerly been a sensory organ, is totally converted into a gland which portrays traces of its history only in the embryonic stage. When this morphological transformation of the pineal gland occurs in more highly evolved animals, it is accompanied simultaneously by a functional change from sensory organ to endocrine gland. The mammalian pineal gland, for example, no longer has any sensory functions. It has become a ductless gland. But even in the case of mammals, the pineal retains its functional connection with light, one of its former basic characteristics. In mammals, photostimulus is no longer transmitted as it is in the lower vertebrates by the pineal vesicle that is located directly under the skull. It is now the eyes that relay the effect of light to the pineal gland by the way of the sympathetic nervous system. And so now talking about melatonin, neural impulses induced by light in turn stimulate the pineal gland to secrete a hormone, which is melatonin, uh, which once released into the bloodstream travels to and affects the gonads and the pituitary, adrenal, and thyroid glands. So to step back for a second, yes, we're talking about specifically melatonin. It's the neural impulses induced by light that stimulate the pineal gland, which then releases melatonin and affects the gonads, pituitary, adrenal, and thyroid glands. Breaking it down, that means that light affects the gonads, pituitary, adrenal, and thyroid glands. Do you have a thyroid issue? Do you have an adrenal issue? Do you have a pituitary or gonadal issue? Light could be negatively impacting that. Said another way, if you harness light correctly, you could optimize or normalize those glands or those organs. So moving on to light and darkness. Constant light of 6 to 55 days leads to diminished activity of HIOMT, which I mentioned before, in the rat and consequently to a reduction in the melatonin production of the pineal gland. Constant darkness increases the activity so that more melatonin is produced. So interesting, if you're constantly surrounded by light, there's a massive reduction in melatonin. But if you're constantly surrounded by darkness, it actually increases 
the production of melatonin. It has been proved that light ceases to affect the pineal gland of adult rats after enucleation of both eyes. And enucleation, for those who don't know, is the removal of an organ or tumor in such a way that it comes out clean and whole, like a nut from its shell. And yes, I got that from Google, so there's a nice <laughs> picture for you guys. The eye coming out of the orbital cavity is like a nut coming out of its shell. The entire organ is removed. So in the case of this research, it has been proved that light ceases to affect the pineal gland of adult rats after enucleation of both eyes. It must therefore be assumed that light's effect on mammals takes place by means of retinal photoreceptors in the eyes and not by means of the direct effect of light on the pineal gland. So that's basically to say that light cannot directly get to the pineal gland and affect it. It is through the eyes and then thus transmitted to the pineal gland that light is able to affect the pineal gland. So again, that's through the energetic pathway. Another way that light influences the pineal gland is by means of other neuroendocrine transmitting materials, such as pituitary hormones. So although there are proven interactions between the pituitary and pineal gland, the pituitary does not appear to play an essential role in transferring the effect of photostimuli to the pineal gland. Another possible way for light to influence the pineal gland is by means of the autonomic nervous system. And this is a really cool and really important point, which I'll speak about after this couple of paragraphs. But the sympathetic nerve fibers leading to the superior cervical ganglion to the pineal gland were discovered in rats. So to break this down in layman's terms, there's a set of nerves in the upper neck that connect to the pineal gland. And so they discovered this in 1960. Moving on. Severing the individual nerve fibers in the rat disclosed pathways which conduct photostimuli from the retina to the sympathetic nervous system. Examinations conducted after extirpation, which is removal, of the superior cervical ganglion and after severing the sympathetic nerve fibers led to the conclusion that photostimuli reached the pineal gland by this pathway. And this is the exciting point. The, the pineal gland functions as a neuroendocrine transmitter by transforming neural photostimuli into hormonal ones, such as melatonin, under the influence of exogenous factor, which is light. These hormonal stimuli then reach the midbrain and pituitary gland, and thereby the gonads through the bloodstream. So that's all to say, the pineal gland transmits hormones such as melatonin, secondary to exogenous factors such as light. And the reason why this is so exciting and important is because we're talking about melatonin here. And a lot of people who don't get good sleep turn to melatonin supplements or, or otherwise to help them fall asleep and stay asleep more comfortably and better and longer. So what this is all saying and why I'm excited by it is, is because this shows that there's nerves near the upper neck that respond to light, and these, these nerves in the upper neck are connected to the pineal gland. So again, there's nerves in the upper neck that respond to light that can induce melatonin production. And for anyone that has a BioLite or has the Red Light Therapy Treatment Protocol ebook that I've developed, 
and you go to the sleep section, you'll see that one of my protocols or one of my tips is using near-infrared light on the neck or the upper neck. And that's because if we have light stimulating those superior uh, cervical ganglion that are connected to the pineal gland, we can induce melatonin production. Thus, doing that protocol before sleep may actually enhance or induce a more restful sleep. So for anyone that did know that, take that home and try it if you have a red light therapy device. Specifically use near-infrared because you need to get beneath the skin. Use near-infrared and target your upper neck, so basically the upper half of your neck, to get the superior cervical ganglion. And do that for anywhere from 5 to 10 minutes, depending on the intensity of your device. And do it about 30 to 60 minutes before bed. Do it consistently. Don't just do it once. Do it consistently and see if that helps you fall asleep. So receptor organs of the pineal's hormonal secretion are essentially the gonads, the thyroid, and the adrenal gland. So the pineal gland, when stimulated or lack thereof stimulation, can affect the gonads, the thyroid, and the adrenal gland. How about light and color change? In 1886, Hermann discovered that salamander larvae grew lighter when exposed to red light and darker when exposed to blue light. Not sure what the significance of the darkness of the larvae are, but again, just to show the impact of light or different spectra of light. We sure know um, the negative ramifications of blue lit technology versus red light therapy, but again, that's just demonstrating the impact of light itself. And then lastly, in 1958, Hallwich by making the frog's visual center inoperative by means of coagulation, succeeded in proving that color change occurs independently of the visual process. Via the eye and an energetic portion of the visual pathway distinguishable from the optic portion, photostimuli reach the diencephalon where they influence the pituitary glands hormone production. That's the direct pathway of light to the pineal gland is this energetic pathway. And as we can see, there is a laundry list of ways that it can affect us. The pineal glands hormonal secretion are received by the gonads, thyroid, and adrenal gland. So if you're having issues with those glands, potentially you need to change your light environment. But let's move on to the very last portion of this episode, and we're going to cover light and growth. Size and weight are the most important measurements for assessing body development. It must not be forgotten, however, that physiologically both of these vary considerably and that hereditary standard of living and the acceleration of growth, which can be measured from generation to generation, play a large role. But aside from these factors, body growth and the development evince a series of features more or less clearly connected with the manner in which the endocrine glands function and thus with the production of hormones. Height and weight, as well as the area of the body's surface, the musculature, the skeleton, and other organs usually exhibit a relatively uniform growth. More exact analysis discloses four different periods. First, the body grows extraordinarily quickly. Then, until puberty, there follows a slower but relatively constant growth which runs approximately parallel to the weight curve of the pituitary and thyroid glands. 
So that last sentence is especially one to keep in mind, especially since we're talking about light and its effect on different organs and glands, is that up until puberty, there follows a slower but relatively constant growth which runs approximately parallel to the weight curve of the pituitary and thyroid glands. And so that we'll see if there's an inhibition of light, if you don't get enough sunlight, then you can literally see a decreased weight of your pituitary and thyroid glands, which is not a good thing. So we're going to look at the influence of light on the development of the human body and mind. And this is where we're going to start getting into some research that utilizes blind people versus those with normal eyesight. And we'll be able to see a pretty stark contrast of what happens when your eye is not able to receive light like it is supposed to. Not for visual purposes, but again, the energetic pathway. And so this is research that was done by Wimmer in 1856. And so that's crazy, almost 170 years ago. But Wimmer goes on to write that the whole appearance of a blind person when deprived of sight for a long period of time bears the markings of that underdeveloped vegetative state of that retarded growth due to deficient bone formation, poor mixture of vital fluids, and the pallor thus caused, all of which make the body disposed to diseases difficult to cure, especially the rachitic deformities and to scrofulous diseases. But but this underdeveloped vegetative state disappears again, the body's power of reproduction is enlivened anew, and the organism seems to grow younger when vision is restored. For example, by a cataract operation or the formation of an artificial pupil to someone who has been blind for a long period. So that is mind-blowing, what uh, Wimmer just wrote there, that all of these deformities, all of these pathological issues that a blind person is dealing with can be relatively restored if vision can be renewed. And according to Lang in 1927, those who became blind early in life exhibit retarded growth in abnormal skeletal development. And that's an issue that we'll see here in other research is that the timing of when you become blind plays a profound role on your your body and physiology. Um, to continue, in 1927 with Lang, uh, he examined the children of Munich Institution for the Blind, finding frequent deformities of the torso, such as otherwise occur only rarely. This is true, however, only for children who had been blind since birth. When a child did not become blind until his 8th, 10th, or 14th year, it generally displayed the same posture as most other school children. The author attributed the cause of the deformities of the torso, the retarded growth, and the skeletal problems to early blindness, lack of physical exercise, and lack of light. But those regaining their sight by means of surgery exhibit a spurt in growth, and children becoming blind late or after puberty show no difference from those with normal vision. So that's kind of crazy. They go on to say that we observed that blind girls reached their menarche half to one year earlier compared with sighted girls. So again, there's hormonal changes, thus being deprived of light. It seems to accelerate the menarche. Therefore, they continue, 
light input via the eyes stimulates and its absence diminishes the formation of gonad-inhibiting substance in the pineal. So if you're blind, you're not getting that light input, then you're not getting the formation of gonad-inhibiting substance, and thus that's why uh, blind girls seem to have menarche much sooner than females with normal eyesight. And then moving on to another topic that could explain the retarded growth seen in blind individuals and the reason for a smaller increase in the height of children who become blind in early life, Hallwich did some research in 1951 where x-ray examinations of the skull indicated that the blind have a cella which is smaller in area on the average than that of persons with sight. And in accord with these findings, the analysis of the cellar area of 74 blind persons showed that the time at which blindness occurred influences the development of the cella. If it occurred in the first years of life, the cella usually remains small. If it occurs later in life, in the second developmental stage, then the larger cella areas result. Since the pituitary is located in the intracellar area, very small cellae also means smaller hypoplastic pituitaries. Hypoplastic meaning they're not going to change their form as much as they should. And so this leads to the conclusion that photostimuli also have a stimulatory effect on the development of the pituitary. To recap all of that, the cella is what the pituitary sits in, and if you're blind at a very early age, if not birth, the cella doesn't grow as it should, and thus the pituitary gland which sits in the cella cannot develop as it normally should, and thus that leads to the conclusion that the photostimuli, or lack thereof, can have an effect on the development of the pituitary gland as well. Thus, it can affect growth and that abnormal, retarded growth that is seen with individuals that are blind at birth or blind at a very early age. And that's important because, keep in mind, uh, human growth hormone is, is a hormone that is released by the pituitary gland. So if you have a smaller, non-properly formed pituitary gland, that's going to have an impact on its ability to normally release the human growth hormone. Also interesting to note about HGH, human growth hormone, is that researchers discovered that the secretion of the growth hormone was almost three times higher at night than during the day. And so that's why sleep is known to be restorative and it's known for growth Growth doesn't happen during the day. If you're not getting good sleep and then you're lifting weights at the gym or you're a bodybuilder and you're looking to bulk up, if you're not getting good sleep, you're doing yourself a massive detriment because you're not getting that endogenous production of growth hormone that's needed for recovery, repair, and growth. Hallwich in 1973 presented the first data on the influence of ocular light perception on the HGH level. There is not only a significant difference in HGH level between the seen and the blind, but in the case of a cataract patient, a significant rise in the level can be determined after the removal of the cataract and complete restitution of the light's entry into the eye. 
So there again, we have uh, someone with poor ability to get light into their eye. They removed the block, the, the cataract, and when normal light into the eye is resumed, they see a normal production of HGH. So again, light playing a role endogenously in hormones. And then lastly, we'll, we'll wrap up the episode with this. There's research that also demonstrates that the function of the organism is very closely connected with daylight and the alternation between light and dark. When light is cut off completely, as for example, in the case of blindness, its stimulatory and regulatory effect is absent. The diurnal rhythmic fluctuations are barely discernible any longer, hormone secretion is severely diminished, and there is a neuroendocrine deficit. It would appear that the individual hormonal regulatory systems are still intact, but that their normal activity is reduced. So we'll end the episode on that note. And just to kind of recap that, there's so many functions in the body, different glands, different uh, physiological pathways that are uh, primed and run on light or darkness in the case of melatonin production. But the point being light or lack thereof has such a profound effect on the endocrine system, on the immune system, on you know metabolic functions, on growth, so on and so forth. It comes down to light. And so I'll leave you with this thought of the first part of this uh, three-part series. Consider what a lot of people like to wear on a bright, sunny day. And it's fashionable. And I'm talking about sunglasses. But if you're wearing sunglasses, you are literally cutting off information, energetic information to your eye that's relayed to your pineal gland, hypothalamus, pituitary gland. Subsequent to that, there are many immunological, metabolic, hormonal processes that happen secondary to that light information being received. And on the flip side, when you are wearing sunglasses, uh, God forbid that they are polarized, again, you're cutting off and depriving your body of energetic information. And so once I learned this, and I've known this for, for a handful of years now, and I was the same as most people where I wore some cool, stylish sunglasses. Not that it gets sunny a ton here up in Montana, but you bet during the summer I was wearing those things. But when I learned about this, I literally stopped wearing them and sold them, got rid of them, whatever. But I haven't worn sunglasses for years. That's just another, hopefully, take-home message or potentially applicable piece of advice that you can utilize in your own life. Of course, there's going to be controversy, just like the sunlight is bad for you, so you know, don't let the sun touch your skin. Well, the sun isn't bad for your eyes. And again, it's all about the dosage. It's all about the intensity. It's all about what your body is used to. Potentially, you'll need to build your eyes up to normal sunlight without sunglasses. But the point being, we were raised, meaning evolutionarily, our cells, our mitochondria, grew up on sunlight. And if you decide to wear shoes all day outside, not ground, if you decide to be inside all day, not out getting that full spectrum sunlight, if you decide to wear sunscreen, clothe up, wear sunglasses every single time you're outside, you're literally depriving your mitochondria. You're literally depriving your energetic pathway in your eye that as we've just scratched the surface with this first episode has many 
many implications and potential uh, consequences to your physiology and health and otherwise, that I hope this is starting to get you to question what is considered uh, customary or orthodox or conventional lathering up with sunscreen, sunglasses, clothing, and we're talking about this uh, sun here specifically, but there's there's a lot of things out there in the health and wellness world that we need to open our eyes to. Again, pun intended, I suppose, but food for thought. I hope that you've enjoyed the information presented in this episode. Again, we're going to have a part two, part three, where we dig into even different aspects of light and the energetic pathway and how it affects different aspects of your health and wellness. So thanks for listening. Hope you guys are enjoying it. I'm really excited to present the second and third episode. And I think this is just a great way to start 2022, lay the foundation with this type of information, which isn't red light therapy specific per se, but really even more so the the profound impacts of light itself and specifically the eye. So that's why I brought up the sunglasses is because if you're wearing sunglasses, you're literally cutting off light from your eye, which as we can see from research in the in the 1800s and early to mid 1900s, uh, it's not a good thing and can actually be playing an inhibitive role on your health and wellness. So um, I could keep going on and on, but I'm off my soapbox. Hope you guys have a great week, weekend, whatever you're doing. Take care, be well, get that sunlight especially in your eye. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolight.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolight. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.